4: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The latest edition of the world's most important climate negotiations got underway yesterday in Glasgow. It's the UN Climate Change Conference of Parties 26th meeting known by climate watchers simply as COP26. The basic politics of climate have been shifting, tilting the world closer towards the kind of action most scientists believe must occur. But at this particular moment, energy prices are also rising, a consequence of the shock the pandemic sent through the global economy. And in the U.S., gas prices are the highest they've been since 2014. Given our national politics, maybe Washington is not where we should be looking for leadership. Maybe California has a role to play on the world stage. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are certainly places that have felt the effects of climate change more acutely than California. Island nations, for example. But in our area, especially here in the north where devastating wildfires have hit our state over and over and over, we know that there's a lot at stake. That said, even as we possess one of the largest economies in the world, we do not have the same seat at the table as France or India. Governor Gavin Newsom, like Jerry Brown before him, has pushed more aggressive climate policies than the Democrats' national leadership, and he was supposed to lead our state delegation to Glasgow before he pulled out somewhat inexplicably late last week. COP21, where the Paris Agreement was struck, felt like something of a civilizational milestone. Will Glasgow? COP26's organizers wrote, Paris set the destination, limiting warming well below 2 degrees, aiming for 1.5 degrees. Glasgow must make it a reality. Today we ask, what could real global action mean for California? And what If anything, can California's policies show the world? We're joined by David Victor, a professor of innovation and public policy in the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, also an adjunct professor in climate, atmospheric science, and physical oceanography at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He'll be attending COP26. Welcome to the show, David Victor.
1: Great to be with you.
4: We also have Rachel Becker. Is covering this very closely for the excellent publication Cal Matter. She's their environment reporter. Welcome, Rachel.
3: Hi, thank you.
4: And we have Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine, and author of Climate Change from the Streets: How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. And will also be attending COP26. Welcome, Michael. All right, Rachel, let's uh, start with you. Uh, you, uh, we know that Governor Newsom was planning to attend. Then he decided to stay home. Does it shift anything fundamental in how the state is approaching this big global event?
3: You no, know, it really depends on on who you ask. You know, I've heard some disappointment that the governor won't be there with one climate advocate um, saying that COP26 desperately needs an injection of ambition, um, which which he said Governor Newsom could have provided. Uh, others, though, have uh, said that what's much more important than the speechmaking is um, Governor Newsom's actions at home. So, you know, really mixed reactions. But California's contingent has, um, you know, repeatedly said that they're going to um, put their best foot forward, led by Lieutenant Governor Eleni uh, Kunalakis, and um, have really voiced their confidence in the lieutenant governor's um, capabilities at this conference. Yeah.
4: I mean, I guess the question is, this seemed like a real kind of political slam dunk for Newsom. He just kind of had to show up and be involved in this major climate summit. Do we know why he pulled out?
3: So on uh, Friday was the about face um, about Governor Newsom's plans um, uh, with the governor's office announcing that he would not be attending, uh, quote, due to family obligations and would instead be participating virtually. But the governor's office would not provide any other details Hmm. Uh, Two sources who weren't authorized to speak publicly, however, told us that he did not have any plans to make any major announcements at the conference and had privately questioned his purpose in attending. So, Hmm. um, you know, we're we're waiting for the governor to, to. to weigh in on this, but uh, that's
4: where it stands. Gotcha. Thank you. David Victor, uh, the G20 countries and big economies of the world met before COP26 got started. Did any of the things they discussed or worked out change the situation for COP26?
1: They don't really change COP26. I think just to pick up on what Rachel was saying, at best, these COP meetings um, set a direction. They have a consensus Mm -hmm. agreement. There are lots of speeches. The G20 meetings over the last two days in Rome led to a to a communique that's that reinforced the purpose of the cop emphasized the need to stop warming at 1.5 degrees an an ambitious goal that's essentially impossible to achieve and kind of continue the momentum but beyond that it it didn't really get much done I think we're going to see over the next couple weeks more concrete actions and promises being made at cop and so on but really almost all the action happens on the ground real people doing things you know places like California, companies doing things. And that's not going to be done by a consensus committee, um, whether it's in Glasgow or Rome or any other place. Yeah. And we're going to
4: get to get to that. Some of the shifts in how climate politics have really started to work over the last uh, few years. Michael Mendez, this is your first time heading to COP and you've been deeply involved in environmental justice movement, tracking it. What do you hope to get out of going to Glasgow and hope to see there?
5: Good morning. Uh, Yes, I'm currently actually uh, in Scotland uh, today. I got in last night. I'm really enthusiastic about seeing um, the the ways in which NGOs and um, uh, Native American tribes, Indigenous tribes and other Groups really focused on community-based solutions and environmental justice or climate justice of how they're representing their own values and worldviews at this uh, global and elite uh, conference that brings together uh, 120 uh, world leaders that are trying to commit to more comprehensive and equitable forms of climate action, both globally and locally.
4: I mean, just on like a kind of practical human basis, like what do you expect to actually do? Like, you know, how are you going to fill your days there?
5: I was attending, as an observer, attending uh, some of the official meetings, the press conferences currently, the Biden administration uh, has a press conference and I was watching on um, uh, the special uh, advisor um, Gina McCarthy talk about equitable approaches to cl- climate action, but also it's an opportunity for networking, both you know from the uh, from the policymaker side, but also from the activist NGO side. So there's also um, side events and parallel events that are focused on these issues of climate justice. And uh, people-centered approaches to climate change. So I've, I've attended other global meetings, uh, particularly ones that California have led, and going to the parallel site meetings have been most uh, fruitful and to understand the different perspectives from around the world um, that they uh, individuals bring to climate change, particularly since California is a global leader and often thinks of itself as a nation state and participating at that global stage with uh, countries like uh, Germany and France. Yeah.
4: We're talking about the big 2021 UN Climate Change Meeting COP26 which began Sunday with Michael Mendes, a professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine, David Victor, professor of Innovation and Public Policy uh, in the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, and Rachel Becker, an environment reporter at Cal Matters. And We would like to hear from you. I mean, how do you think California can be a model for global climate policy? What work should California prioritize to reduce our carbon footprint? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your comments to forum at kqed.org. David Victor, when we talk about what's supposed to really happen at this conference, you know, making the, the the destination that Paris set into a reality, you know, what have governments been doing in the years between Paris and now?
1: Well, mostly they've been trying to deal with climate change issues back at home and figuring out what they're willing and able to implement, and that that's exactly as it should be. The only way we're really going to make progress is if you know, governments and firms go make investments, run experiments, figure out what's uh, what's possible. And then at the COP itself, they're, they're, they've been making a whole series of pledges over the last year. And so the reason this is a big deal this COP is because this is the first time since COP 21 in Paris in 2015, when all governments have updated their pledges. So almost every government has come to this COP having already said, here are some new things we're going to do. Now, uh, uh, governments that account for about 70% of world emissions have announced that they are are going to stop uh, stop emissions, net zero emissions by mid-century, almost all of them by the year 2050, China by the year 2060. And so there's been a kind of huge refresh of those commitments, and, and uh, that reflects a lot of serious work back at home uh, over the last few years. Yeah.
4: But, you know, you said that the, the, the goal that was set out in Paris, I think that you described it as basically impossible, limiting warming to one and a half degrees. That means that the current plans that are at, you know, in Glasgow uh, don't really cut deeply enough to get there, right?
1: yeah it's a little bit of a glass half full versus glass half empty story you're always going to have the the goal is always gonna be more ambitious than the governments themselves can deliver because it's easy to set ambitious goals when you don't lay out in detail who has to do what. And so they all get together and say, we should stop warming well below two degrees was the formal goal set in Paris. And a lot of people are using 1.5 degrees as a benchmark. We're now at about 1.2 degrees and, and rising. So when you look at the inertia that's in the climate system, the heat that's already building up, carbon dioxide building up in the atmosphere, plus the inertia in the industrial system, there's no way to really turn that around quickly enough to stop warming at 1.5 degrees. But I guess the, the, the reason I see the glass is half full or maybe a little more than half full is because if you go back 10, 15 years and look at the worst case projections for the amount of warming we'd have, they were looking at four or five degrees of warming uh, this century. And right now we're on track for two and a half to three degrees of warming, maybe a little bit more. And that's still a whole lot of warming, bad impacts, you know, <laughs> bad news. But it's not anything like what the worst case scenarios were before. And that's for a lot of reasons. But part of the reason is climate policy.
4: Yeah. And when we say a lot of reasons, I assume one thing is companies saying they're going to limit these emissions. One thing is China saying that they're going to voluntarily and nationally uh, peak their emissions uh, earlier than might have been projected. And another thing is the availability of this set of new technologies, right, for particularly in the, the power
1: sector. Yeah. And so the power sector is really crucial because almost every study that looks at how do you make deep cuts in emissions across the economies comes to the conclusion that electrification is, is the centerpiece. There's a lot of dispute about how much are we going to electrify when We electrify everything or only some of it. We're running a set of experiments here in California to look at, at different kinds of strategies. But there's been a tremendous amount of progress in the electric power sector, a lot in renewables. Uh, batteries, integration of renewables, the list goes goes on and on and on. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are encouraged about the potential for big reductions in emissions, even if they're discouraged about the possibility of of making cuts deep enough to stop warming at 1.5 degrees.
4: We're talking about the big 2021 UN climate change meeting, COP26, which began Sunday with David Victor, you just heard, professor of innovation and public policy in the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. He'll be attending COP26, part of the UC delegation. We've also got Rachel Becker, environment reporter with Cal Matters, and Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthened the Environmental Justice Movement. He's actually joining us from Scotland now. We want to hear from you. What's California's role in all of this? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the 2021 UN Climate Change Meeting COP26. We're actually joined by Devin Murphy, a Pinole City Council member, literally, I think, at the airport right now on, on his way to Glasgow. Welcome to the show.
7: Oh, uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. How's it going this morning?
4: Good, good, good. So, good. you know, you're a Pinole Councilman heading to this global meeting. I mean, what, what do you hope to get out of it?
7: A couple of things. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. I am. I'm Devin Murphy. I'm a city council member. Buffalo, And frankly, you know, this conference is so important because, uh, on a number of reasons, but as a city councilor attending, I really look to and think that folks should look to small cities. Like mine, of 20,000 who are on the front lines of the movement to combat the climate crisis and fighting for a clean energy future. Um, You know, there's a lot of work that's being done around the globe, but it's really the small cities and small regions, right, that are driving inspiration, hope, and action. And so I'm excited to attend this week.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, give me the Pinot level look. At global climate sure. change like you're looking at oh, the budget you're looking at you know your yep. coastline there you're looking at your water system like yep. what's the what are Pinole's problems being caused by climate change
7: absolutely that's a great question and i love that question so You know, as I mentioned, I'm a a council member for Panol. We're a small city in the Bay Area, but we're about 15 minutes away from San Francisco. Um, We are also a Bayfront city, impacted by issues like sea level rise, but we're also impacted by all the California wildfires happening in Northern California, Um, as well as just being in the heart of Contra Costa County, one of the most industrial counties in the state of California. Um, We're between a refinery and a natural gas facility, so obviously that impacts the air of our families and our children. And so in Pano, you know, I've been focused on a number of issues. Um, First and foremost, most importantly, is building resiliency hubs, right, for emergency operation situations. Um, This includes having areas that, for example, when, you know, we've had a couple of these in the last year, when our air is not clean and we can't walk outside, we have somewhere where folks can go to. Um, To have access to Wi-Fi, to have clean air, to have water, access to water, and utilizing our public spaces to do that is really critical right now. Um, I've been focused largely on the issue of Wi-Fi, municipal Wi-Fi, right? When emergency operations happen, the folks who are hardest to reach need access to Wi-Fi in order to make sure they have the resources to survive. Hmm. And if we don't do that as a city government, who will do it? Um, but the, we don't. We're not stopping there, right? There's a huge push around um, electrification of new and old construction, um, natural gas. Excuse me, natural gas appliances and, and uh, that we've traditionally used. Forty percent uh, increase. Uh, children asthma rates by forty percent. Um, we've got to we've got to take a turn. And then lastly, like you mentioned, water is a huge important issue, right? The idea of recycled water. And in a drought where we're dealing with this in California, we've got to figure out ways to expand on wastewater treatment to ensure that we have recycled water for our community. So those are just some of the ways we're amplifying climate action in Panola.
4: Last thing before we let you, like, walk down the, the jetway to your plane. Um, Are are there particular cities or or is there like a network of small cities that you're hoping to kind of like link into as part of this, you know, um, kind of climate networks?
7: Well, we're hoping to build that. And that's why I think it's so important. And like I said, I come from Pernola. from a small city. I will be our mayor pro-10 next year. And my hope is to build – an elected network, well, excuse me, a network of elected officials who are focused not only on the attendance of COP26, but what happens after COP26 when we all come back home to our respective communities. We've got to build this community. We've got to build this network. And I think as much as we're relying on our global leaders to lead, we've got to rely on our local leaders to make sure to take action and, and steer, steer the ship. So I'm excited to build that community together.
4: Devin Murphy, Pinole City Council member, getting on a plane to go to COP26 right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen,
7: right now, thank you so much (laughs) for doing this. Have a great day. See you later.
4: We're talking about the big 2021 U.N. climate change meeting, COP26. I want to bring in the rest of our panel here. We're uh, still joined by David Victor uh, from UC San Diego, Rachel Becker, environment reporter with Cal Matters, and Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at uh, UC Irvine. Uh, Rachel Becker, I want to talk about California's action, like our delegation that's going to COP26. What are they sort of presenting as like, okay, here's what California's done?
3: So... um Jared Blumenfeld, which uh, who's California's top environmental official, told reporters Friday that the mission is is exactly what you said, you know, to, to learn what other governments are doing to curb emissions, but also to teach, um, you know, bringing California's example of climate uh, policies and regulations um, to other, other nations and subnational governments. Um, and, you know, California does come to the conference with some real climate wins. You know, California reached its 2020 goals to cut greenhouse gas pollution to 1990 levels four years early. You know, we've seen the electricity sector really clean up under the renewable um, energy standards. And uh, California's also got some some pretty serious clean car rules. Uh, that said, you know California does have some you know kind of climate black eyes that it's also bringing to the meeting with it, including um, you know that it's uh, it, it, there have been real criticisms of California's cap and trade program, which we uh, may hear from Professor Victor about um, this is you know the this nation leading carbon market. Um, which is going to be a subject of conversation at at COP26 is is carbon trading and carbon markets at the international level. Um, But, you know, critics have raised concerns that one, the market is not strong enough to reach California's climate goals by 2030. And two, that it allows continued pollution of local communities. So, um, you know, seeing exactly what California says about its cap and trade program and how other nations and uh, subnational governments respond will be really interesting. Um, Lawmakers have also um, Kind of laid out their plans, um, including uh, Senator Lena Gonzalez from Long Beach, who said she's really interested in uh, transportation and learning what other uh, what other governments are doing to clean up um, the the transportation sector, which is California's number one source of greenhouse gas pollution. Um, so, really, there's 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 a lot expected to be going on, a lot of conversations to be had, um, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how it goes.
4: David Victor, it sounds like perhaps you're one of the critics of California's uh, carbon trading scheme.
1: Yeah, I think the carbon trading scheme is a good example of why we need to have a strategy here in California, because we're less than 1% of global emissions. And so what we do here in California matters only insofar as other places around the world learn the right lessons from, from our experiments. Cap and trade system has really not worked well at all. Um, but we have all kinds of other policies that have had a really big impact, in particular in the electric power sector, we're making massive reductions in emissions from the electric power sector. We're grappling with transportation, and notably through electric vehicles and vehicle charging systems. We're grappling with natural gas, and you know, the list goes on and on, on and on from that. Almost all of that has come from California doing what it does well, which is figuring out how to work with industry, send the right signals push down emissions, figure out which experiments work and so on. Meanwhile, our cap and trade system is there as a kind of layer on top of it. It doesn't really have much of of an impact. And and some of what we do in our cap and trade system, like trading these offsets, where where if you're a polluter, you can get a credit for for protecting a forest. When you look closely at those offsets programs and my colleague, Danny Conward, uh, has done really some of the best work in this area, has been the lead on this. When you look closely at these offsets programs, what you learn is that the, they're, they're, mainly a, they're mainly fraud. They're, they're people playing accounting tricks and things like that. And so, we have to be careful as California that when we tell the world what we're doing, we should be telling the world less about our cap and trade system and a lot more of about California's industrial policy.
4: It's so it's so interesting to think about California in the <laughs> in this context. In part because we remain uh, a major producer of. Oil and gas. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Rachel Becker. You know, we have Robert, uh, a, a listener, who writes, What can California do? Many citizens are surprised to learn the state still allows new oil and gas drilling. Ban new drilling now. Uh, is that on the table?
3: So California is going into this conference with some pretty major news on that front. Um, just the other week, California Governor Gavin Newsom backed um, much tougher rules from California's oil and gas regulator about um, oil and gas development. This is still a draft proposal, <clears throat> but what it says is that new oil and gas wells cannot, go, uh, cannot be drilled within 3,200 feet of what are called sensitive receptors. So schools, nursing homes, homes, uh, hospitals, um, and other places where sensitive people might be um, also within that 3200 foot setback zone existing oil and gas wells will need to have much more stringent environmental controls and monitoring than they do now um, that said again this is still a draft proposal so it'll need to wind its way through the regulatory process and and we'll see how it changes as it continues
4: yeah we're talking about the big 2021 UN climate change meeting, COP26, with David Victor from UC San Diego, Rachel Becker, environment reporter at Cal Matters, Michael Mendez, assistant professor, school of social ecology at UC Irvine. I have a listener uh, comment. Writes in Emily in Mountain View says, It'd be great to acknowledge that as a working parent of small children, Governor Newsom may have chosen to support his family in something important over in in in-person attendance at a conference. This was a global conference where our state administration is no longer at odds with the federal administration on the topic of climate change. He will still participate virtually, and we have our lieutenant governor in attendance. Not defending Governor Newsom, but I am rather showing this as an example of how we need to support working parents. Point taken. Let's uh, bring in Sven from Palo Alto.
8: Good morning, everyone. I'm commenting about systemic bias in the building codes as related to electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Specifically, when you build a new single-family home now in California, it has to be EV capable. It has to be pre-wired to be ready to accept your electric car for charging. When you look at apartments and condos, the current standard is 10%. And the Mm -hmm. proposed standard right now is 40%. So that means 60% of the people that live in apartments and condos aren't going to be able to get an EV because they're not going to be able to charge at home. And as those who drive EVs, probably 80% of us charge at home because it's cheaper. You can get much cheaper electric Mm -hmm. rates. It's much more reliable because it's your charger at home, and it's much more convenient because it's your house. You save about $500 a year in driving an EV versus your current ICE car. So I see this as a, as a huge environmental problem because, as has already been said, we've got to electrify everything, but it's also an equity issue because we're, you know most people in single-family homes have greater incomes than those in apartments and, com- and condos. So we're just you know, making that divide that much bigger by not allowing people to charge at home. Thank you so much for that, Sven. Michael sure.
4: Mendes. do you want to address that as uh, an equity issue?
5: Sure, that's an excellent question and, and sort of a conflict, conflicting issue that uh, community-based groups, particularly environmental justice groups, these are organizations uh, largely representing uh, communities that are low-income and communities of color, have been fighting for and putting this equity and justice lens into California's climate change programs, which often have been very global in scale and geographically neutral, really not really focusing on the hardest hit and the first hit communities. Um, we see this as you met, as the caller mentioned from electric vehicles that the large subsidies were primarily going to wealthy and economically secure households, and so we were subsidizing individuals that didn't uh, need the subsidy. Uh, we also saw this in the solar uh, uh, subsidies as well that it was mainly going to single family homes and again with uh, individuals with incomes over eighty thousand dollars. So the environmental justice group over uh, the years have really withheld their votes in the legislature, and uh, both in terms of uh, legislation and in terms of also the, the annual budget, um, because it did not have this environmental justice equity lens. Largely, the, uh, the Latino Caucus, Latino Legislative Caucus, and the uh, African American Caucus were really in uh, pushing the charge to... Uh, provide more equity in um, the revenue that we do for climate uh, change investments. And as, er- as a question that you made uh, earlier about what what is California's role, um, the, another caller had a comment that uh, we have the Biden administration, so California really shouldn't doesn't have much of an influence at, uh, at the, National level or the global stage, but California really does in terms of how we lead with these equity principles. Um, at the fifth largest economy, the things that we do are scaled up. Other places, um, we see this in the Justice 40 um, agenda, the climate agenda that the Biden administration has and is pushing forward. Um, Can you tell us a little US more
4: about and Cal- that and like California's role in that?
5: Yes, so, so the the, uh, the Justice 40 is a fundamental shift. Um, Really bringing off of the Green New Deal principles of putting at least 40% of all climate investments in disadvantaged or environmental justice communities. That means low-income and uh, low-income communities of color that are first and hardest hit by climate change impacts, both in terms of uh, local pollution, um, as well as impacts of wildfires, uh, extreme weather events, uh, and ensuring that we're not only providing mitigation opportunities, but also climate adaptation, adapting these communities, these socially vulnerable communities uh, ahead of time, uh, before they can prepare for our changing climate. So that 40% was directly derived after the many years um, that the environmental justice groups were, were fighting essentially with uh, largely white coastal Democrats and mainstream environmental groups like the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, NRDC, uh, the National Resources Defense Fund, that did not in the early years want to put an equity lens and have a dedicated uh, mount or floor of climate investments and environmental justice communities. So in my book, Climate Change from mary Streets, I really chronicle that history and that conflict and eventually collaboration that, um, that forced the, the, the governor's office and various administrations and, of course, the legislature to have a more equity focus on climate change. And we see this again uh, with the Biden administration adopting the uh, climate uh, the Justice 40 initiative.
4: Who do you see, you know, at that subnational, as they like to say in climate things, you know, states, cities, other other, you know, provinces and other places, who are sort of California's allies in using that sort of equity lens?
5: I would say our, 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 on the west coast, of course, we have Washington state and Oregon. Uh, Washington is probably um the biggest leader on the west coast trying to put forward, uh, Justice Equity Lens, their, their climate uh, change ballots have uh, failed in, in previous years because they did not include labor and environmental justice organizations when they drafted those uh, state uh, ballot measures. So they have learned uh, from uh, those experiences, have really looked and had conversations with policymakers and uh, environmental justice organizations in California to have to understand how w- uh, we did it in California. And I know that there's similar um, talks that have been going on with uh, New York. I was actually at the National Association of Latino Elected Officials um, this past week, where I was giving a talk on uh, climate-induced disasters to uh, Latino elected officials from all over the country, and I was sitting next to um, a representative uh, from the state of New York, who, uh, who the chair of the, Labor, the Senate Labor Committee and talking about the influence California has had um, in terms of uh, addressing uh, climate induced disasters and, of course, uh, climate mitigation. So New York uh, a couple of years ago passed a comprehensive program and, and that actually kind of looks like the suite of climate policies and programs that California has enacted over the last um, 18 years.
4: Hey, David Victor, uh, Amy, listener tweets, um, any chance you could be the one news outlet that doesn't talk in code? You could actually say what 1.5 degrees means. 1.5 degrees more than what baseline? Just in our 30 seconds before the break here, maybe you could give us a that quick breakdown.
1: Sure. One and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And that's just the benchmark that's used in almost all the climate models.
4: Yeah. And pre-industrial levels pegged to sort of what? Time. Yeah, the end, the end of the
1: late, uh, the end of the 19th century, roughly. Uh, there's some different baselines, but it, when you look at, take a step back and look at the temperature data, it's like a hockey stick turned on its side. It, temperature is highly variable over history, and then starting with the explosion of the Industrial Revolution and the emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, temperatures have been rising very, very rapidly ever since then. We're talking about COP26,
4: the latest U.N. climate change meeting with David Victor, professor of innovation and public policy at UC San Diego, Rachel Becker, environment reporter with CalMatters, and Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. We really do want to hear from you. How can California be a model for global climate policy? And is California doing enough to reduce its carbon footprint? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. or at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about COP26, the latest U.N. climate change meeting. We've got Michael Mendez from UC Irvine, Rachel Becker from Cal Matters, and David Victor from UC San Diego. Uh, David Victor, Shana in Oakland has some pushback for you. Uh, she writes, uh, David Victor said that the offsets used in California cap and trade are mainly fraud. I know that offsets are a complicated concept. It's never possible to fully prove a counterfactual, but I'd love to hear his evidence because that was a very steep claim. To question offsets that individuals or companies purchase is one thing, but those of the whole state's flagship program. Cap and Trade and the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund have provided funding for countless investments across the state, such as EV charging infrastructure, bike amenities that help people get out of their cars, and much more.
6: Yeah, so there
1: yeah, two separate issues there. One is what's done with the money from the auctions that, that sell these commission credits. And exactly she says, that money is used for lots of purposes, some worthy, and you have to pay really close attention to where the money flows. And frankly, we need better controls over that so we maximize the value from that. Danny Cullenward, who I mentioned earlier, and I have a book out called Making Climate Policy Work, which looks at the world experience uh, with these cap and trade inclu- systems and focuses a lot on where the money goes. On the question of the fraud, uh, that's, I think, really the dark news here. And there's been a huge amount of research in this area. Um, I would draw your listeners' attention to a series of articles that James Temple from Technology Review, which is a flagship publication from MIT, has published over the last year. If you just search for Technology Review, you'll find a climate reporter, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and extremely knowledgeable, very, very careful reporting. And then there's a piece in the Los Angeles Times that looks at one of the flagship forests that was used to generate offsets that then burned, and people still use the offsets. And so you have all the emissions that were credited back in the atmosphere and the companies that use the offsets are still emitting, uh, are still causing the emissions for which they claim the offsets were covering. So I think it's actually a pretty dark story out there. And we need to, we, we got to remember that as California, we're proud of our leadership, but the whole game on climate ship climate is not leadership, it's followership. It's getting others to do things that really matter. And our cap and trade program is not a good model. I mean, to
4: one thing that kind of spins out of this uh, for me, um, an adjacent issue. I mean, the, the US and EU announced this sort of bilateral deal to encourage emissions reductions in steel. And analysts, kind of explaining the substance of that in the Washington Post, noted how much climate action now is contained in those kind of deals. And one of their points was that the push to really set a price on carbon, whether it was just a straight up price or there was some kind of cap and trade system, had largely failed and so more of these kind of sectoral approaches going after, you know, transportation, going after particular industrial processes, that that was really what was having more impact now. And my question about this is, is pricing carbon in this way that, you know, economists have been suggesting for decades, is that really just a failed strategy at this point? Is that Are we actually not going to do that?
1: I think it's part of the strategy. So pricing works well when everybody knows what the best technologies are and what they cost and what you're doing is using the market to help firms optimize their choices and that in that kind of setting A well-designed pricing system can play a a significant role. Almost everything that's really interesting when it comes to making big reductions in emissions isn't like that. It's the the example of of steel and aluminum, the deal that was announced over the weekend between the United States and the EU, where the alternatives are so much more expensive and complex and risky than the existing products that you can't expect the price effects alone to get firms to go off and make the investments in the experiments. You've got to go work sector by sector and figure out uh, which technology actually are viable and not, learn quickly and then scale those up. And that's exactly what that deal is going to do. It's the most important climate news this week um, compared with all the talking in COP26, which we'll be talking. And then people, when they're done talking, will be done talking. Whereas this will be a lasting uh, bilateral arrangement. Yeah. You know,
4: uh, Rachel Becker, um, we asked people, sort of, what can California do? Uh, And I'm going to read a little group of these uh, comments from, from listeners. And I wanted to just ask you, you know, is California actually... On its path to doing some of these things from your reporting. Uh, so we've got Bill. A simple thing California can do. Don't shut down Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, which produces about as much clean power as all the solar panels installed in the last several years. Chris and Modesto writes, California could begin a program where states could partner with countries on the front line, sharing technology, etc. Like we do with firefighters. A listener tweets. Uh, California has one of the lowest oil severance taxes in the country, less than one percent. Texas charges seven point five percent. Seems like a no-brainer to increase this tax, but I never hear our representatives talk about it. And Eric in Menlo Park writes, "Ban? Uh, is there an effort to ban use of two-cycle gasoline engines, such as lawn mowers and leaf blowers, in the state? With cleaner cars, these devices are now a significant source of the state's air pollution, but there doesn't seem to be the political will to ban them. So, a little uh, a menu of options, <laughs> Rachel."
3: My goodness. Okay, there are a, a lot of things to address there. I mean, it's a great question what uh what California is going to look like when it's uh, post-nuclear. Um, you know, the the loss of of nuclear power plants will mean California has to replace them with something. Uh, and you know, it's not looking like it's gonna be hydropower given how un- inconsistent California's rainfall is and and you know the projections that with climate change um we're gonna see, you know, more kind of whiplash between drought and and deluge. Um so that's a that's a really something I think California is grappling with right now. Um it's something that the California Legislative Analysts Office has looked at. Um Uh, about sharing technologies with with other uh, frontline communities. Um, California has uh, interacted with other governments, um, you know, with delegations, including from China, um, about its its climate and and clean air policies, Uh, you know, it's a great question about where those are going and Mm -hmm. um, how those will carry through into the COP26 conference. Um, And uh, for lawnmowers and leaf blowers, there was was some action um, at the the legislative level on this. So um, we'll see how that plays out.
4: Yeah, cool. Thank you so much. Um, You've amazing grasp on what's happening in this state. Meredith from San Jose, welcome to the show.
9: I was just calling in to share some information about what's happening in San Jose right now, which is the City Charter Review Commission is proposing a uh, resident, indigenous, and scientist led uh, Climate Crisis Action Commission into the city charter. It would be the first of its kind in California. There's one in Honolulu. Uh, There are a lot of other um, citizen uh, led organ uh, policy initiatives in other cities, but this would be the first in California at the charter level. It would be a permanent commission to take ideas like those uh, uh, other listeners just called in with and craft them into policy that the city council has to act on within 90 days. Um, the city charter review commission is also proposing a police oversight board in uh, the in the city charter of San Jose in the next couple of weeks. The city council will vote on it, and hopefully next year, San Jose will get a chance to, uh, to add that to our city charter to make um, policy and oversight and uh, community communication on a small scale change like, uh, like those people are calling in about the um, reality Meredith, in San Jose.
4: Yeah. Meredith, what's your role? How'd you, how did you get involved in this kind of organizing?
9: Uh, last week, I spoke at the City Charter Review Commission, and there's an article in the Merck from this Sunday uh, about the efforts of the of the Charter Review to uh, to get this kind of board uh, in our permanent community, um, so that uh, policy and indigenous voices can be lifted up in uh, how we operate as a city, not just on that big granular level. Like uh, San Jose has a great. Uh, Clean Energy Commission that's working on electrification, but things like water reclamation, waste management, food security, um, uh, open spaces and uh, and urban farming those are all things that there's a lot of work to be done on
4: um, Meredith Ian you know for someone who's working the way you are, really like in the nitty gritty of like making this work at the city level. I mean, do you need anything from COP26 or are you just sort of like, you know what, we we have the solutions we need and we have the policy framework that we'd like to institute and like those negotiations can go however they go. But we're going to keep working here.
9: Yeah, I don't think whatever comes out of COPS 26 is going to change what's happening municipally, um, maybe at the state level. And that'd be great. Um, sort of like that two cycle engine, uh, uh, leaf blowers mm-hmm. and lawnmowers that somebody was calling in about. There's also an initiative uh, made with a working group from Councilmember Matt Mahan uh, um, making leaf blowers a uh, thing of the past in San Jose as well. It's going to phase in. And I think I think it's already passed or it's, it's close. Yeah. Hey, Meredith,
4: thanks uh, so much. That was was a great update from San Jose. Michael Mendez, I'd like to hear uh, from you. I mean, it sounds to me like this is exactly the kind of uh, local uh, activism with the the kind of lenses that you have sort of been pushing for.
5: What the caller just talked about, this people-centered, community-led approach is so exciting to hear. And Because uh, time and time again, my research and others uh, from around the world have showed that uh, climate action fundamentally starts with um, passionate, uh, courageous individuals at the local scale experimenting around uh, climate uh, solutions and problems and enacting them. And then those are seen by other um, uh, regions as being successful and they, they they start to gain saliency and legitimacy and are validated uh, throughout the world. So climate action really does start at the, the neighborhood local scale. And it's also important what um, what the San Jose is doing and other communities like Richmond, uh, Oakland um, and New York City have really led um, and providing more diverse voices and going away from this abstract only expert or economic uh, lands uh, and providing uh, the the influence and lived experience of people that are on the front lines and living next to the Chevron refinery in Richmond or here in, uh, or down down south in Wilmington, and really bringing them into those spaces to talk about uh, how climate change is impacting the health of their communities, their children, um, and 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 en- enacting that into our climate change solutions. So, uh, time and time again, research has shown when you put that public health lens on, on climate action and its messaging and its policies, a multi benefit, co benefits focus on health economic and social, you have more saliency and more impact uh, around, uh, around the world. And it's quite concerning being here at COP, you know, walking around. It's a very expensive process to be here. And, there, you know, I'm Latino and there's very few people that are black and brown at this this community. So that's another issue. At COP, um, uh, globally, uh, the access to diverse um, um, voices and expertise from around the world, particularly island states and those communities, uh, those countries in the global south uh, that are also at the front lines. So that's another concern at uh, being here at COP and seeing that a uh, lack of diversity from um, uh, com- uh, people of color from developing countries. Yeah.
4: You know, uh, David Victor, we've been talking a lot about sort of the intercommunal aspects of this, you know, at the kind of subnational level. And we've also been talking about kind of the global level. Um, I do want to ask you about what we should make of Biden's framework for a prospective deal with Democrats, which seems at the national level like it could have, say, half a trillion dollars in various types of investments and tax incentives around climate action. Uh, what's your what's your take on it?
1: I take us it, it's a big deal. Um, it's half a trillion dollars, plus or minus. You know, when you have this quantity of money, it's a little hard to keep track of all of it. It's depending on how you count, five times larger than any single climate bill in history. So it's a really big deal. I think the president, when he's in in Glasgow, is going to discover that on the one hand, he's doing a lot at home. On the other hand, the rest of the world isn't quite sure what to believe because he's that he's gonna cut US emissions 50% by 2030. This bill probably won't get there. Um, The modeling is pretty hard to do, but I don't think the modeling suggests that we're going to get there. Um, And then on top of it, the rest of the world is not just paying attention to what we're going to do in terms of controlling emissions, but also paying attention to the U.S. contributions to international funding around climate change. There was a big pledge made going back to 2009 for $100 billion of new climate related money per year by about now. And the world, the rich countries are about 80% of the way there. Germany and Canada have stepping up the plate just over the last few days and are going to help fill in some of the missing parts. The president made a big announcement at the UN that, that the US would be making big contributions, but we don't have the money because we don't have the support in Congress, in part because the nation's divided. And so that whole problem of, of on the one hand announcing that we're back, and on the other hand, the rest of the world not really knowing what we can deliver and watching our newspapers as this whole messy political debate unfolds inside the united states that's very harmful to the u.s position in the world
4: yeah i mean i have a hard time imagining that like a hard-nosed chinese or european technocrat could look at the american system right now and see a trustworthy climate partner i mean
1: (laughs) yeah and and the chinese the so the chinese uh uh, head of state is not going uh he also didn't go to cop uh, to the g20 meetings over the weekend um, our relationships with China are in tatters. That's a big problem because we're the two biggest emitters. And so, if you go back in history to the to the years before the Paris Agreement in t- two thousand fifteen, it was what the U.S. and China did pledge to each other bilaterally that helped set the tone for what was achievable in Paris. None of that is happening right now. There's a little bit of happening in the kind of margins in a quiet way, but none of that kind of big uh, strategic relationship with the other big economy in the world is happening, and that's a that's a big problem yeah
4: let's bring in one last caller arthur from court Madera.
2: hello there hey arthur um great program as usual Thank um you. i'd like to recommend three organizations in marin county which are living up to the notion of marin being a exceptionally environmentally oriented community uh the first is the marin environmental forum which, for I think about 42 years, has been teaching uh, the ins and outs and nuances of environmental policy at virtually all levels. It's a training class, um, goes on for um, a, a number of weeks, and which you take tests, and which basically is the equivalent of going to Berkeley to learn environmentalism. Uh, another organization, is called resilient neighborhoods which sets up a checklist of what an individual can do to improve their environmental con- contribution by their own behavior so that you um, uh, get together it is it, it, frequently started in a library uh, you join with other people you you trade suggestions on how to save conserve or do a right action over time. And then over the period of time, the, quote, class goes on, you compare where you started and where you're ending. Um, It's exceptional. And it can be done anywhere. In other words, you don't have to be physically present to go to a a class um, in Marin. Lastly,
4: Oh, I just wanted to uh, we're running out of time. Arthur just wanted to give people the shout out. That's environmental forum and resilient neighborhoods. Rachel Becker, I wanted to give you the last uh, word here around California and sort of what you expect if you expect when the our delegation gets back from COP26. Do you think anything will be different uh, or policymaking will will change?
3: That's a really good question. And it's it's difficult to predict the future. You know, I know that California's lawmakers, um, were looking forward to having conversations, you know, among themselves and among the California delegation in response to many of these sessions, it kind of gives them an opportunity to, to chat, uh, have these focused conversations about climate and climate policy. So we may, you know, we may see something coming out of this, but, um, You know, it really remains to be seen um, how the how the discussions go, you know, what California's lawmakers and top officials learn. Um, I think that, you know, we'll just have to watch how this plays out. Yeah.
4: Thank you so much. We have been talking about the big 2021 U.N. climate change meeting. That's COP26, which began on Sunday. We've been joined by Rachel Becker very excellent environment reporter with Cal Matters, David Victor, professor of innovation and public policy with the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, and an adjunct professor in climate atmospheric science and physical oceanography at Scripps. He'll be attending COP as twenty six as part of the UC delegation. And finally, Michael Mendez, assistant professor, at the School of Social Ecology. Uh, at UC Irvine and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. And he's already in Scotland. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.